Welcome to Four Questions. So, what drives democratization over time? Why are some, but not other, African countries becoming increasingly democratic? Ken Opalo, assistant professor at Georgetown University, has a theory. And we're going to put it to the test. Right now. Right. Ken, welcome. Thank you, Alice. Uh, happy to be on your podcast and uh, looking forward to our discussion today. Okay, so, Ken, I'd got to admit, being totally honest, when I first read your manuscript and I saw the topic legislatures, my heart kind of sank. I mean, my initial response was really one of dismissal, being totally blunt. I was like, legislatures? Like, no one ever talks about that um, in African politics. And certainly in my own research in Zambia, the legislature is really weak. I mean, it's just a rubber stamp. And so I, I think blinded partly by that group think that I'd never seen it discussed in any of the African politics literature I read, I sort of assumed that it wasn't important. But then I'm reading your book, I actually realised that you've revealed something phenomenally important that the rest of us have totally overlooked. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, so I'm so pleased that you are here. Um, so, Kent, tell me, in some African countries, you find that African le legislatures do check executive power. Yes, I do. And uh, I think I think you know going back to your initial reaction to the manuscript, uh, the challenge that we've had so far is that uh, beginning in the 70s and 80s, a lot of African scholars uh, dismissed all kinds of institutions on the continent, uh, right? And then the study of African politics became exclusively about the president and patronage and clientelism. Big men. Uh, yes, the big men uh, theory of African politics. Uh, however, you know there's also a very big and influential literature on autocratic institutions, uh, right? Uh, Jennifer Gandhi, among others, have, have shown that even under autocracy, like existed in Africa, uh, these institutions still condition the behavior of elites and even presidents, uh, right? Presidents still governed with parliaments, uh, and the mere existence of parliaments imposed certain constraints on presidents. So, so even if, you know, the Zambian legislature was a rubber stump, it, it still meant that a law had to go through the parliament to get passed. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and by the mere fact of that happening, at times MPs uh, got concessions from the president, uh, which they wouldn't have if there wasn't any parliament. That said, uh, uh, and you know, that's part of the story I'm trying to tell in the book, is that even during the era of strong presidents and weak parliaments, mm -hmm. Not all African parliaments were uniformly weak, uh, right? There were some, like the Kenyan parliament, that had actual power and could influence policy and uh, legislative outcomes in, in more substantial ways than uh, other places like in Zambia. So, what are, so you're saying some legislatures in Africa are stronger than others? Yes. So what, why is that? Why are some legislatures stronger than others? Uh, some of it is historical accident, mm -hmm. uh, right? So I could say that, um, you know, if you look at the case of Kenya, the, the Kenya's colonial experience with legislatures was slightly different than Zambia, uh, which uh, bequeathed post-colonial Kenya a relatively stronger historical memory and institutional habits. Uh, some of it is the style of rule of these so-called big man presidents, uh, right? Some presidents were strong enough uh, to allow for the emergence of an organizationally independent institution. Uh, in some countries, for historical reasons, presidents were very weak. Uh, and, you know, weak presidents, uh, ironically, uh, you know, you would think that a weak president would operate with a strong legislature. But it is the case that weaker presidents were less likely to tolerate uh, any kind of institution or 
potential source of uh, a power base uh, for fellow elites. Uh, so they presided over very weak institutions. So, you know, this leads to a paradoxical claim in the book, too, which is that, uh, you know, allegedly strong autocrats at times can foster the emergence of strong institutions, in part because they feel strong enough to balance the same institutions. And this is what you find in Kenya, whereas yeah. in, in Zambia is much weaker. Can you yeah. tell me more about that historical process of decolonization? Why, why we see these differences between Kenya and Zambia? What led to that? So, you know, I think... Uh, Kenya and Zambia are interesting cases because if you looked at both countries, uh, say, after World War II, mm. they, you know, kind of looked similar. Uh, both were settler colonies. Mm. Uh, yes, Zambia had copper. Uh, Kenya was agrarian. Mm. Uh, but they seemed to be moving towards becoming uh, Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia, mm. right? Mm. Settler-dominated, uh, quasi-independent uh, mm. polities. Um, then in Zambia, uh, the move to federate... Zambia with Zimbabwe uh, racialized Zambian politics to a much larger extent than it did in Kenya. Um, and so while in Kenya uh, the decolonization process was obviously racialized, it was also about internal politics. Uh, and so in Kenya doesn't get an African, a strong African nationalist anti-European class. Uh, there were lots of ethnic parties, they're fragmented, everyone is looking for their own interests. Zambia gets a proper nationalist, national nationalist movement, uh, which post-independence, the party that inherits that mantle, UNIP, uh, essentially starts performing the functions of parliament. All right? So this is, this is a big mechanism in the book in the sense that uh, the historical contingencies that produce the types of parties that exist in Kenya and Zambia uh, mean that you know, in Kenya, a weak party... Uh, runs the country after independence uh, we, then the party's weakness means that parliament continues to serve as the main arena for intra-elite mm. politics while in Zambia the strength of the ruling party uh, actually makes it the main arena uh, of intra-elite politics uh, and as you mentioned the legislature then became a rubber stamp institution uh, because after UNIP had decided uh, parliament had no uh, other recourse but to pass Mm. UNIP's uh, policies. Okay, so you're saying that un, uh, in, the, in the immediate decades after decolonization, the legislature in Kenya was relatively strong. What do you mean by strong? What kind of strength did it have? What kind of checks and balances? Because in the book you distinguish between means and pro process and ends. Yes. Can you tell me about that? Yes, so um, you know, both Kenya and Zambia had autocratic institutions, yes. meaning that Ultimately, the president could veto and get away with mm -hmm. vetoing an outcome from the legislature. Now, the difference was that in Kenya, parliament actually did the job uh, of crafting uh, legislation, members negotiating legislation, uh, members giving each other concessions uh, intertemporally, uh, what you know in the U.S. context, for instance, may be called log rolling, um, and just. By virtue of doing all of that, the Kenyan legislature had to develop the organizational organizational mechanisms for handling the intra-elite bargains, uh, right? And so organizationally, it became strong. Uh, and related to that, you know, they might just, you know, I know this may sound fuzzy, but mm. this political culture of how to conduct intra-elite politics, mm. right? It became known that if a major policy issue was, you know, to be passed or addressed, mm. Parliament had to be involved, mm. uh, and sub uh, substantially so. 
Well, in Zambia, because everything happened within the UNIP uh, architecture and especially within this, uh, the Central Committee of mm. the, of the uh, ruling party, Parliament never developed the mechanisms of handling any of these negotiations, uh, right? So UNIP uh, had fewer sittings than, uh, I mean, the Parliament in Zambia had fewer sittings than uh, the Parliament in Kenya, suggesting that members were spending uh, far less time on debates and scrutiny of legislation, etc. Uh, the Parliament was relatively underfunded compared to its Kenyan counterpart. Again, because the Kenyan counterpart looked at laws uh, to a much greater extent than in Zambia. Uh, and so even though, <clears throat> excuse me, even though, I, you know, from 30,000 feet, uh, both of them looked relatively weak compared to the executive. Right, both look like rubber stamps, yes. in a sense, yes. if you just look at the final result, what yeah. happens at the end. Uh, but, you know, how you get to the results was different. Right, okay, so and, and beneath what, the radar, all these people are working out how to build bills, how to cooperate together and work within the legislature, but you yeah. don't see, we often might have overlooked yeah. that. So, so both lacked ends independence, yes. that is, they couldn't uh, pass laws that were counter to the pre preferences of the chief executives, uh, but Ken the Kenyan parliament had means independence in that uh, once they knew what Kenyatta or Moi wanted, they could work towards it. But here's a question. Why would you bother? Like, if you knew you couldn't get the final result that you wanted, why invest in all that dealing and wheeling? Yeah, I think, you know, the this is the uh, one of the uh, unexplored sort of questions in, in the study of institutions, right? And I think we could all benefit more from reading a lot more of uh, uh, literature on autocratic institutions. Mm. I think, you know, once the idea of three branches of government sort of became settled, uh, everyone, dictator, democrat, always wants to have a parliament, uh, mm. right? And for a parliament to be credible, even under autocracy, it has to be seen to do things that, mm. say, benefit elites or, mm. or other groups. Uh, and so in the Kenyan context, um, there was this historical legacy of, you know, dealing with parliament as being, you know, the way politics is mm. done. Uh, but there's also, you know, Kenyatta also had this constraint that he didn't have a, a strong organization in the ruling party. Uh, and parliament was the only institution that had the means of bringing elites together, having them hammer deals and produce outcomes. Mm. I find it so interesting that you know, lots of people when they talk about Kenyan politics, which isn't an expert, expert area of mine, so please dismiss me, tell me if I've got this wrong, but they often say, you know, Kenyan politics is so divisive. But what you're saying is partly it's that divisiveness that meant that the executive allowed for the legislature to flourish. And that's what's been so important. Yeah, yes. So I think that, you know, I think uh, a counterfactual would be if Kenya, say, had a strong national nationalist party, it probably would have wound up with a weaker legislature uh, like in Zambia or Tanzania, mm, uh, mm. right? So and that makes know. me really rethink some of the work on ethnic heterogeneity and public goods and sort of politics and that. I yeah. think that's a fun way of looking at that. You yeah, know. yeah, you know, you know, life's trade-offs, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, having, having a, a, a divided elite uh, class meant that uh, you couldn't have one dominant group in the legislature mm. or mm. within the elite class. And so, you know, everything was up for a bargaining. Okay, so then what, so now we've been talking about what happens under authoritarianism, then we see the shift to multi-partyism. How, do, how does that shape the legislative executive dynamics? Uh, yes, so 
in the early 1990s, Kenya, Zambia, which are the main cases in the book, among other African countries, are forced to end single-party rule. Mm. Um, now, the lifting of this veil of single-party rule uh, uh, empowers legislatures, uh, uh, I would say uniformly across the continent, right? Because now it used to be that you had to be a member of the president's party to be a member of parliament. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, under multi-party politics, you can be a member of any party, right? So access is increased for anyone. Mm. Uh, it also means that elites from the president's party can defect to the opposition uh, and still be members of parliament. Uh, now, the this is where you know the historical experience of means independence comes in, uh, right? Uh, it is the case that when single-party rule ends not all African parliaments become strong over time, right? I'm arguing that it is those that already had the organizational development through means independence that are able to take advantage of uh, their newfound freedom under multipartism uh, and continue to grow and become more independent from the executive and stronger uh, in terms of uh, becoming more institutionalized. I think that's such a, a fantastic way of looking at it that we just hadn't Considering, you know, there's been so much literature on the persistence of sort of elected authoritarians, how you can have multi-party politics, but still these very entrenched dominant parties who yeah. uh, retain power and control everything that's going on. And what you're saying is, well, actually, we need to look at what happened in the preceding decades, look at what shaped legislative strength, what enabled them to have means independence, so sorting out the bills themselves, initiating things, wheeling and dealing and organising and sitting together and working out how to cooperate. Yeah, yeah. And with that history, with that organisational strength, when it comes to multi-partyism, they're like, boom, we've got this. Yes, yes. And they're able to take it on and, you know, because the it, it takes a while, right? So, uh, Palsby, Nelson Palsby wrote this amazing paper on the in institutionalization of the U.S. Congress, right? The process of becoming an institutionalized entity mm. takes time. Uh, uh, you need, you know, members to get re-elected over time so that they accumulate institutional memory. Mm. Uh, you need habits to be formed about how things get done. Uh, what's expected, and, yeah, what's, what's, appropriate, what's expected, what you what's can count on others to do. Know, uh, set expectations mm. for members and the president. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, a big change like the end of single party rule, yes, it's a discontinuity in one regard, but, uh, you know, new institutions get layered on top of old institutions and habits and mental models of how the world works. And for that reason, we need to know what precedes, you know, major changes like the end of single party rule. Uh, and if you look under the hood in, in Kenya and Zambia, uh, especially with the legislatures, there's a fair amount of continuity. Uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting that in Zambia, the party that succeeds UNIP, the mm. MMD, uh, behaves like UNIP, right? Yeah, yeah. sure. It wants members to be disciplined in parliament. Uh, you know, Chiluba by 96, he wants to be, you know, a demigod himself. Uh, by 2001, term. he wants to, you know, uh, remove term limits. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the the, the counter model persists mm. even after counter. And PF tries to be like MMD. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but, okay, let me ask you a question. So, you're saying that it takes time. And so they had the, the decades under authoritarianism to acquire legislative strength. But why hasn't the Zambian, Zambian legislature acquired this organizational strength since 
multi-party politics. The early yeah, I mean, they, they have, they've had it almost 20 years now. Yeah, so, so Zambia... But we've seen an increase... Someone said there's been an increase in authoritarianism. Maybe. Yes, so... Uh, I mean, so... So it's yeah. not just time. What else is... Yeah, so two things. Yeah, mm. I think I think that... I think that I would, I would argue that the uh, legislative strengthening and institutionalization can mm. happen even under autocracy. Right. Uh, right. So, you know, Lungu can become a, a stronger autocrat. Just even, for the listener who's not a, a yeah, Zambian. President Lungu. <laughs> of Zambia, yeah. Yeah, can become... Uh, more autocratic, even as, as, as the parliament becomes stronger organizationally and, and, and becomes more institutionalized. But what's interesting in Zambia is that uh, because of multi-party politics, uh, a few things have happened. Mm. Uh, the Zambian parliament now has a bigger say on the budget, which didn't used to be the case. Mm. Uh, the Zambian parliament uh, is uh, trying to get control over the constituency development funds, uh, which is still run by the Ministry of Local Government. Uh, and I think I think these changes will uh, improve their bargaining power vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the president. Mm. Uh, the Zambian parliament now has greater control over its calendar than it used to, uh, right? Uh, especially following the 2016 constitutional amendment. Um, and you know, it's it's these small things that count, right? Once, and we didn't talk about this uh, uh, at the beginning. Uh, once parliament has control over its budget uh, and calendar then they can have as many sittings as they want. They can have as many committee meetings as they want. So you think that there's no... So what you're saying then in the case of Zambia, for example, is there is no sort of path-dependent trap of being a weak legislature that may just grow over time. You know, there could develop a positive feedback loop of gaining these small powers, and when you have small powers, you push for other powers. And so that could just increase. It's not trapped in any sense. Yes, so it's not trapped in any, in any sense. I think that, mm. you know, time alone would create, you mm. know, a relatively strong uh, organization. Mm. Uh, now, the ability to stand up to the executive, now that would require, you know, a shift to a higher plane whereby members have electoral incentives to uh, stand up with the executive okay i have two a couple of questions now now one i want to say is so we've observed these differences between kenya and zambia are they true more broadly uh yes so you know one of the mechanisms in the book is that you know a strong party uh may mean a weak parliament mm -hmm. because the party substitutes for parliament mm -hmm. uh, right and, you know, if you look at Tanzania, uh, if you look at Ghana, uh, for instance, uh, if you look at Benin, which doesn't have you know, strong parties in, in the traditional sense, but ruling parties in, uh, generally are able to enforce party discipline. Uh, if you look at Botswana, uh, right, uh, these are countries that you could say are strong uh, electoral democracies, but we still have far weaker parliaments in part because members... Uh, the strength of parliament is has been usurped by the ruling parties uh, and a lot of the bargaining takes place within the party and parliament merely rubber stamps uh, and how did you party. test this empirically can you talk us through the quant methods because i found this quite cool oh yeah yes um so the one you know the, the potential observable implications of the many claims mm -hmm. i make in the book um so one of them is that um if parliament is strong then members of parliament uh, will use their institutional power to gain more resources and, and invest in their re-election, uh, right? So what I do uh, in one of the chapters is compare uh, incumbency advantage before and after the end of single party rule, 
uh, and I find that it, indeed in Kenya, uh, using a regression discontinuity design, that members are advantaged after 92 and disadvantaged before. Mm. Yeah, and I also collected uh, lots of data on uh, executive rulemaking. So, do parliaments allow uh, the president to write rules as they're implementing laws uh, that are counter to the original intent of legislation? Uh, and again, you know, uh, following the discontinuity in nineteen in the early nineties with uh, strengthening of parliament, uh, you see a decline in presidential. Uh, executive rulemaking. Uh, you see greater control, uh, especially uh, after 2000 in Kenya. Um, and in both Kenya and Zambia, actually, you see increases in funding for legislatures after the 1990s, uh, early 1990s. Uh, Kenya is now infamous for having the highest paid MPs in the yes. world in real terms, yes. right? This is a reflection of the power of the Kenyan parliament. They can pass increases uh, in their salaries. So that's not being driven by the executive, that's been driven by the that's, legislature? That's all about the legislature, right? Uh, the president has on multiple occasions tried to stop them, but oh, they really? can't. Yeah, they, Too powerful! <laughs> yeah, they can override his veto. Okay, but here's a question, because I think this raises a broader concern for me. How important is it to have strong checks and balances from the legislature? To what extent do the Kenyan people benefit from that? Because my understanding of, well, the data is patchy and we need to be careful, but how much do Kenyan people benefit from a strong legislature, such as a legislature that prioritizes huge increases in their own salaries, as you just said? Yeah, so I think, I think yeah, I think... What are the developmental benefits so the... of a powerful elite? The developmental benefits are that uh, to another you, you will have uh, equitable growth across the country. Is Kenyan growth equitable? Um, it's, well, yeah, it depends on your level of aggregation, uh, right? So under single party rule, when parliament was relatively weak, uh, uh, if you looked at road construction, there's a great paper looking at road construction in Kenya and, and how you know, it shifts after you, you move to multi-party politics when the president has to make friends with elites across the yeah, country, yeah. Uh, then presidents begin to invest in roads uh, in places outside of their co-ethnic areas. That's an awesome uh, way of looking right? at how multi-partyism affects spending on, yeah. you know, regional spread of spending. That's very yeah. cool. So, I like know, that. And and even in the Kenyan case, the the constituency development funds, mm. the CDFs, uh, each member now gets about a million dollars to mm. spend each year. Uh, some of it gets lost uh, mm. through corruption, mm. yes, mm. but a lot of it also goes into school construction, fixing roads and whatnot. I want to put a note on the end of this podcast. Like, I know the data on inequality is super patchy because we don't necessarily know how much top earners are getting because many of that money might be squirreled away and there are big questions. But I'm pretty sure I read a report suggesting that over the past 10 years the income inequality has increased in Kenya. In Kenya. Specifically, yeah. and I think they're saying it's with like jobs, you know, labour income inequality has arisen where, you know, there aren't so many labour intensive. I need to double check that, yeah, but no, I'm no, pretty no, sure no. it's yeah, so, uh, yeah, I'm not making the claim that inequality mm. has gone down, mm. right? Because... Mm. Um, but what you're saying is government spending is more equitable yes, than it would have been. Yeah, and there more, are other factors besides government spending that will yeah, influence inequality yeah. dynamics, so, like how much so, different people you know, are earning. You can think of intra-regional 
uh, inequality may be rising, right? Mm. But that could also be a function of the fact that uh, now within the country, elites in all regions are getting wealthier, mm. uh, while may maybe uh, uh, while poorer people in those regions are not getting wealthy at the same rate. Mm. Uh, so yeah, the point is, it's probably true that as Kenya, so Kenya has grown quite a bit since mm. 2002, yeah. and that some of that has uh, some of the uh, sort of downside of that has been the rise in inequality. Mm. Mm. Okay, I have another question. Why is it that so many people didn't see, didn't realize the importance of legislatures? Like, why were there idiots like me who had just been reading all this African politics stuff and, like, totally blinkered to this stuff beneath the hood? Um, yeah, so I, I, think, I think it's the fault of the 60s, um, I should say. Uh, and I should note that, you know, there are people like Joel Barkan, who passed away, unfortunately passed away uh, a couple of years ago, who persisted. So Joel, uh, you know, is a godfather of my, of, mm. of my work. Uh, he persisted in studying uh, legislative politics and pork barrel spending mm. um, and incentives for members uh, throughout his academic career. Mm. So some persisted, uh, right? But most people stopped. How was that work received? Was that research engage did other people engage with like did other yeah, people some, I, i'm not familiar with yeah this. it was i mean as as because as you as you know right it was a very niche sector mm. not many people uh, engaged with it right mm. because all the action in african politics was with you know presidential elections oh, big men yeah and the big men and ethnic politics mm. and whatnot right mm. a good example is you know if you look if, if you if you scour the net today looking for results of the nigerian election it's all about Buhari and Atiku, right? There's almost nothing on the legislature, right? Uh, right. Mm. Uh, well, in in if we were to if we take these institutions seriously, we should be studying them and knowing what they're doing. So, remind me of this academic's name. Uh, Joel Barkan. So he's a bit like a Van Gogh of the legislative world, and yes. said that his work was unappreciated of his time. Yes, absolutely, and and you know. I, I'm glad uh, that I persisted and was able to convince my committee that this was a useful sort of endeavor. Uh, and and. But what, so why didn't we see it? What? Why? Why was this work dismissed? Or I mean, yeah. So I think I think it was also a function of you know Africa being different, right? Uh, African politics. Uh, and but on, but but people study legislatures in the USA. Why why were we not studying them in Africa? Why were we so consumed with the big men narrative? Because it's easier to collect data on the big men, uh, you need to invest a lot more to get the data on uh, on parliaments, right? And I would add, um, Ken has done phenomenal work. Like I don't know, like how you collected all this data, on, like yeah. the sittings and the archives and all the yes, phenomenal. Yes, so you stuff. know, like, there's a lot of lots there's of a lot of data spent, collection in that, right? You know, so I have a picture. I should have brought the picture. Um, um, so funny story. The picture uh, wouldn't be so good for the listeners, yes. but we can do it later. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, so, I was in the Zambian parliament, so I spent uh, seven months in Kenya and seven months in Zambia. Mm. I was in the Zambian parliament in this section in the back mm. uh, where I guess nobody had gone forever. Mm. And I tried to take out this book, I think it was from the mid-80s, and mm. the whole shelf. <laughs> Uh, so everyone came running and you know I was, I was stuck because books were all, all around me uh, but yeah the fun bits of archival work so mm. I mean yeah most of the data collection I did by hand right mm. just going through the books taking pictures mm. and then coding um, uh, what you know specific laws were passed how many laws were passed each year how many seatings were there each year 
um, and and you know how many executive orders were issued what was the topic of the order um, okay I have a question when did you get the hint the sense that legislative might be an interesting thing to to explore like how did you know that it might be possible that it might be important yeah yeah so I mean I so I came into this uh, from the perspective of elite politics right uh, right so you know uh, when I got into grad school initially I wanted to study conflict thank God I stopped um, <laughs> Uh, so, so then I switched to elite politics mm -hmm. as a way of understanding, you know, how states run mm -hmm. on, or don't run, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and then the next step was what kind of elite institution mm -hmm. should I study? Mm -hmm. uh, one of them could have been parties, uh, but uh, because I was mostly interested in studying Kenya and perhaps Tanzania or Uganda, uh, it quickly became clear that you know parties in Kenya. They're very weak and highly volatile. Mm. So then uh, I started reading up on the autocratic uh, institutions literature. Mm. Mm. Uh, and then it dawned on me that, well, you know, there are these institutions, parliaments. Uh, they, they're supposed to provide checks and balances. They're not doing so. So I started asking why. Mm. Uh, mm. And, and, you know, going in, even in the Kenyan case, I initially did not expect to find anything. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, until, you know, I started looking and... You know, in the 60s, uh, under Kenyatta, there are lots of examples of Kenyatta losing motions in parliament mm. to the backbenchers. Right. Um, it's, it's, you know, Moy's attempts to strengthen Kanu in the 80s is a direct response to an independent parliament. So he's trying to take power out of the parliament and into the party. Uh, he loses that fight by 88. The elites have soured on him and he starts getting mass defections. Uh, so then, you know, it's like, wow, I have a story. Uh, did you find it difficult to, like, did you, did you find it difficult to convince other people, like, in the early stages of your research yes. that legislatures were important? Can you tell, because I think this is something that actually, um, or maybe this speaks to a broader concern that many people have in political science, like some people whose work isn't very fashionable, or if, you know, if there is a phenomenon of groupthink where we valorize and celebrate either it's a particular method or a particular topic then we might like me like i want to use me as an example of a terrible person in the discipline more broadly <laughs> that we might dismiss or not take seriously other stuff can you maybe talk us through your experience of that and how you navigated it yeah i think i think you know my initial experience was um so I mean, my my advisors obviously mm. were were skeptical, right? Oh, really? And and you know for good reason, right? <clears throat> they 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 were looking out for me. They wanted me to yeah, sure. finish my dissertation yeah. and be able to get a job mm. and and be able to have a successful publishing career. So they were pushing you down the road everyone else was traveling in because they knew that was what was getting yeah. results, right? Yeah, and you know I think at some point I had uh, two potential topics. Mm. Uh, one was still going to be uh, looking at African elites, but. Mm. Um, so I have I have this project that's mm. that's been going on forever. Someday uh, I think I'll finish it, mm. which was uh, the basic gist of the project was to look at how colonialism disrupted elite arrangements on the continent. So you know, uh, the the basic finding in the paper is that places that had pre strong pre-colonial elites mm. were likely to experience conflict and instability after independence. Uh, and a mechanism that I was exploring at the time was the fact that colonialism creates new elites, uh, many of whom were not royal or, you know, uh, mm. of the pre-colonial mm. elite stock. Uh, 
Uh, and so these newcomers become presidents and prime ministers and are immediately in conflict with the old guard right. uh, in the post-colonial mm. era, right? Uganda, Ghana, Nigeria, part dynamic mm. examples of this. So this was initially going to be my project mm. and, you know, one of my advisors was very, very big on this. Mm. Um, but then when I shifted to legislatures, yeah, I had, I had to show, I had to convince them. And I think because of that, it forced me to be a bit more careful with the data collection. Right, more rigorous, because yeah. it is incredibly so, rigorous, you know, like the, the archival work and the quantitative work. Oh, I see, so it's that sense that everyone was doubting you and being the outsider, yeah. you're like, right, I need to so, show you know, this, so, I need yeah, to prove I, I, had, I had to show them that, you know, <laughs> you can find... Their skepticism yeah. forced you to become stronger, yeah. right? Okay. The, you know, I can count the number mm. of sittings mm. each year, I can mm. show you the, sh the proportion of mm. bills that were passed or not. Uh, I can show you the salaries. But I think that is a huge problem if it's the case in the in, in our discipline in political science that people might have that, you know, this, that genuine and, and motivated by altruism, you know, wanting yeah. the grad student to do well, you know, not being against the grad student, hugely supportive of their work, wanting them to do well. And so looking what others do and what gives other people success and so pushing them down that familiar road. But as long as we're pushing down people down a familiar road, then we're never going to explore and uh, yeah, you know, yeah. reveal new territories. And, and you know, I was, I was having, I was having uh, lunch with my dissertation committee mm. chair last week and, uh, you know, he, yeah, looking back, he's, he's, he told me something that <clears throat> kind of uh, I would like to share, which is that, if you have a passion for a topic, mm. you know, just go for it. Uh, I think, you know, if the latest fad will fade away, right? And if, if your whole research agenda is predicated on what's hot now, then you keep shifting and you'll never have a coherent sort of uh, uh, research agenda. I would agree, but I would add another point in, a, in the direction of everyone else, not to be such an ass. Like, everyone else should try to be much more open-minded. Yeah. And if you see something that's a bit freaky, a bit weird, engage with it and explore it and, and recognise that we're all struggling with our own confirmation bias and that's the greatest threat to science. Yeah. So we, as an audience, need to try to recognise our bias and be much more receptive to, the, to these new takes because otherwise yeah. we won't progress. So yes, it's great if a few people are plucky and they stick yeah, with it. Stick but with a it. plucky person still... If a person, if an individual is plucky, they become Van Gogh. And that doesn't help the discipline as a whole. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So for me, the onus would be on everyone else. On everyone else to be more, more open-minded. Yeah, because, to you know. you know, the haystacks or whatever. Because, yeah, it can be, it can be, it can be a lonely ride, right? Mm. So it's only recently that I've, I've began receiving emails to be on panels that look at legislatures in mm. low-income democracies, right? Mm. For a long time, that was not the case. Uh, so it was me and me, you know, trying to convince the viewers that this is are really important. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's good that now we, uh, we've moved past the initial mm -hmm. barrier and there seems to be greater acceptance, but you're absolutely right. We all need to be a bit more open to different things mm -hmm. and to be open to, you know, studying of messy, messy things, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, we shouldn't shy away from messy historical studies because that's this, you will always find something interesting. Do you think there's scope for more archival work in, in African politics? Yes, yes. So, you know, so pre-colonial African politics, mm. right? I'd love to read more on that. Uh, I'd, re I'd love to read more on uh, resistance to colonialism, right? So mm. we tend to imagine colonialism as this 
hegemony that takes place from you know 1885 mm -hmm. to the 1960s mm. right it was super precarious mm. uh, i would say the interwar period is the only time when colonial powers in africa have some control and then mm. world war ii happens and everyone is saying you know yeah, yeah, guys. Sure. right so we need we need to study politics in the region uh, and you're saying that's important for two reasons one for intrinsic interest and also because of the long-term effects yes, on other things right yeah, yeah. yeah and we can only understand the present and how we got there by understanding how you know different yeah because you know understanding nigerian politics you need to know what mm. was happening mm. in the north and mm. in the other regions before and the, the organizational development yeah. and institutional strengths yeah. etc and you know and if again because right now it's, it's very hard to take institutions seriously uh, right. What do you mean by that? Uh, it's uh, I think the a lot of political economists, right, uh, especially after Asimoglu and Robinson mm. demonstrated the power of institutions and their influences, mm. right. We've, we've many of us take institutions to be serious uh, sort of influences of human behavior. Mm. If we do, then we should we should study institutions and take them seriously, uh, right. Uh, and we should uh, definitely walk the walk, walk the talk. Uh, you know, donors should not, uh, you know, preach institutions in one instance and then try to undermine them by uh, tr uh, circumventing them in another instance. Uh, Tell right? me, be more specific. So, if you're giving money to Malawi, uh, it should be on budget. The parliament should debate it, uh, right, under the uh, as part of the normal appropriation process. Uh, so that everyone sees that they have a stake in it, mm. as opposed to running it off budget, uh, mm. right? Uh, because again, going back to the point about means independence, mm. right? Institutional development—it's uh, like a muscle. The more you use it, the uh, the stronger it gets. Uh, now you're talking my language. Now I can understand this. All. Yes. <laughs> Only instead of the gym chat earlier, I would have been all over this. Yes, yes. So you know the. The more these institutions get to do stuff, the more. I, and now the whole the, book makes sense. Yeah, the stronger okay. they'll become, and 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 I would argue, you know, because, you know, a country's political economy is often a very intricate balance, mm. right? Uh, special interests, them, you know, voters, mm -hmm. elites, uh, political elites themselves, mm. uh, and the more they get to do stuff. Uh, the more coalitions emerge that are stable and that can balance each other. Okay, so now I have a question, Ken. So let's suppose we're converted, we're totally convinced that legislators matter and we need to allow them to strengthen that muscle. What can be done to enable them to strengthen that muscle? Like, and I'm thinking from the point of view of different actors here. So for civil society in Kenya, how can they support legislators to... You know, what can civil society do to strengthen that muscle building process? What can inter um, election observers do? You know, what, what can all these different players do? Um, I don't want to focus on age, you know, I don't think that's terribly important yeah. in all contexts. But, you know, there are a range of different players. Yeah. What can they do to so, support that process? You know, I think, I think one of the biggest barriers right now to legislative strengthening in mm. Africa is the very high turnover rates, uh, right? So in your average African country, between 60 and 70% of legislators don't get re-elected. That's I, I insane, know. right? Uh, yeah, it's it's very high. So in Kenya, it's only I was thinking that 60%. incumbents will be able to... No, they're not getting re-elected for a variety of reasons. Is it because they're terrible and everyone hates them, um, in which case is it a problem? So, uh, no, so it's, it's, it's two things. I think mm. one is... Um, 
Yes, they're terrible, but not because they're intrinsically terrible. Mm. They're terrible because they're not able to meet their campaign promises. Right. Uh, right. So thinking about how do you make legislatures, uh, legislators more effective uh, would be a way to go. Uh, now, CDFs uh, have, have been proposed, but, you know, there's not enough capacity uh, even within innovations like CDF to make the members meet their campaign promises. So I would argue that in countries with CDFs, uh, where members have money that they can use to engage in constituency service and other things, some may call that clientelism. I think it's constituency service. Uh, we should strengthen them and make them better able to perform those tasks so that you get a higher share of them getting re-elected. Um, and why does it matter that more of them are re-elected? And I, mean, I think your answer is going to be institutional memory because that enables them to yes. the organisation. So, so in which case you have a bit of a vicious cycle. If you have the problem of, of lack of incumbency, then you have a weak legislature without this institutional memory, and then you have this problem of not having CDF, right? Isn't yes, that a vicious of, of cycle? Yes, not having cycle the resources loops? and checks on the executive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're yeah. Too negative so, feedback loops. Yes, so we need, we need to, you know... Sorry, I interviewed yeah. myself. No, 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 no. <laughs> this, it, you've read the book. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, I think I think the the biggest challenge is you know get, getting to a point whereby members can get reelected, right? Mm. And you know, we could say that maybe high reelection rates will promote corruption, but you know, I think I think the current equilibrium is is equally bad with regard to corruption, mm. uh, right? So members are playing a one-off game. There's not there's there's not an expectation of a right. repeat play, mm. uh, and so corruption is a problem. I would I would argue that you know. If you had higher re-election rates uh, in some places like Kenya, members would be less, you know, rapacious. They would have greater influence over the bureaucracy and the president. And they'd have a higher stake and in the long-term interests yes. of the institution. Absolutely. They're just in it for their quick wins. Yeah. I think there's a parallel there between what you're saying at the individual level and what people say about um, institutional legitimacy. So people often say, something like Nita Rudra would say that if a low-income democracy doesn't have that much money, it can't invest in public goods. If it doesn't invest in public goods, then it has low legitimacy. People don't perceive the government is doing anything, so they're less likely to pay taxes. And that, that in turn, limits their capacity to use government revenue to spend on things. Yeah. And what you're saying of that, which has been observed at the macro level, is also true at the individual level. If an individual MP doesn't have the CDF, then they can't spend and they yeah, yeah. and you know if, if they don't have the CDF or they don't have the institutional power to force the bureaucracy to do what they promised they would do uh, because you know a good example would be you know mm. the, the the US Congress right mm. individual members of Congress can threaten you know an agency X mm. with budget cuts if mm. they don't do what they want for their constituents uh, right uh, the Army Corps of Engineers builds dams everywhere, uh, right, for individual members to credit claim and cut ribbons, uh, right? So if you don't have a, if the government doesn't have the capacity to do that, then the member can't promise anything because they're not able to deliver. Um, and 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 you know, it's in in a piece for uh, Brookings, which uh, just came out yesterday, actually, I tried to make this case that you know, it's enough. Uh, I mean, it's great that we th we think a lot about electoral transparency and democracy mm -hmm. through elections, but democracy is not just about elections. No, sure. It's also about, you know, can citizens be able to see that this happens when I vote for the right person? Right? So you're saying if the MPs had a bigger CDF, 
they'd sp they'd be able to meet their campaign promises, then people would re-elect them, then they'd stay in the game longer and would be able to strengthen the institution. Yeah, and, and you know, so CDF is just one example. Mm. Um, I think, you know, CDF is, it's, it's uh, I would... Honestly, is it called the same thing throughout Africa? Because I know it's CDF in Zambia, but yeah, so, it, so, everyone calls it CDF. Yeah, so yeah. different countries have different modes of implementation, mm. uh, which is also a reflection of the strength of the legislature at the point of the adoption mm. of CDF. So in Kenya, MPs controlled the CDF. In Zambia, because the president was relatively more powerful at the time it was adopted, CDF is still controlled by the government. The MPs share credit with local governments. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So in a place like Zambia, I would say give the MPs more power. Now, in, a, in my ideal world, we don't need a CDF. What we need is a strong enough bureaucracy that responds to members. Yes, right. Yeah, and their requests. Uh, so that... Oh, yeah. So that's another... Sorry, continue, please. Yes. So that, you know, all this happens through the bureaucracy, right? Mm. Because you need to strengthen the bureaucracy. CDFs sure. circumvent the bureaucracy. Yes. Uh, which, you know, it's, it's not a good thing. I think no. everything should... You know, if, if we design institutions, mm. uh, we should design them in a manner uh, to make sure that they do what they're supposed to do. For sure. Uh, and not, you know, build these elaborate uh, sort of entities and then circumvent them uh, every which way. Right, so I misunderstood. So it's not about strengthening CDF, it's about strengthening government performance overall. Yeah, so in my ideal world, we strengthen government performance overall so that if our member says, I will fix that bridge, yes, the state... Has, a has the capacity to fix the bridge and the member can use the budgeting process to make the state fix the bridge. So your easy solution for everyone is just to improve government performance. <laughs> I, I think I've used the word messy many times here and I'll say that again. I think, I think yes, I think it's, I think it's messy, but, um, you know, part of my frustration, uh, mm. you know, and, and the older I get, the more frustrated I'm getting is the fact that any, you know, uh, those of us in development mm. or, or people who care about politics mm. in general, mm. every time we come you know, across a complex problem, mm. we often try to run away uh, either from the politics or the complexity, mm. uh, right? Uh, and I, I just, I wish we had, you know, uh, thicker skin and, and tried, right? Uh, it's going to but, be messy. But, but what but I'm saying is how do we overcome the, this chicken and egg problem? That as long as the as long as state performance is weak, as long as the state is not delivering, yeah. as long as politicians can't uh, deliver the things they promise, then they can't stay in the game, then you have a weak legislature. And, the weak, and a weak legislature may in turn curb the effectiveness of the bureaucracy. Yeah. So, how, so, so how I mean, we could overcome that? So, um, I think, I think, so CDFs again, you know, they're the second best solution. Uh, I think finding a way to help legislatures credit claim. Right. Yes, that would be a good way. Oh, to I get see. Them so, even credit. if there's only a partial win, let them claim some yeah. credit. Yeah. Like, let them stamp their name on some wells. Yes. Yes. So, finding a way to have legislature legislators credit claim. Uh, would be a way to unlock this jam. And I think this also ties back to broader work about the importance of strengthening state capacity. Yeah, there's no getting around it, right? There's no getting around it. Um, and, and, you know, because citizens experience the state mm. uh, through state services, yes. uh, right? If, if there are no public goods and services, then uh, there's no point in having elections. 
mm. because on what basis are we evaluating the government mm. uh, right and if we don't have a tangible basis of evaluating the government then you know we're creating uh, institutional architectures that will just fuel, uh, fuel clientelism uh, right because if i can't credibly promise you that i'll build you a road then i'll give you a handout because at least you'll see that but wait know, is there a, is there a problem here is there a potential problem eh, or ugh. In that, do we want the state to claim credit for things or do we want the MP to claim credit for things? Because could it be that if the MP claims credit for things, then that reinforces a certain clientelist or clientelist expectations? Yeah. Whereas I, if the state thinks, then people have you know confidence in what the, the government provides things. Because, you know, I often see in, in Zambia, sometimes the politicians will say, I provided this. It's like, no, taxpayer money did that. And, yeah. and they might portray it as their own beneficence, their own gifts. Yes. So, and I so, think yeah. that, that's so, so, a little bit yeah. dangerous. And while yeah. I'm with you on the need to import, you know, strengthen faith in politicians and get, keep them there, there is a, an ambiguity there, Yeah, right? you're absolutely right. This is why, you know, even with CDFs, I would argue that they need to be institutionalized so that everyone understands that the MP is merely using state resources to deliver public goods and services. Because mm. so often they claim, like, I yeah, bought you yeah, that, yeah. yeah. So it has, to be, it has to be very clear where the money is coming from. Mm. Uh, and, and there's a second reason also for wanting um, individual members to, to claim credit, right? Because uh, ultimately the balance of power between the president and parliament is mm. political, mm. right? We can write the most elaborate constitution we want, mm. but, you know, that relationship is inherently sure, political. Sure. And uh, for Parliament to be independent, it has to be composed of individually independent members. Yes. Uh, with you know strong bases of support uh, mm -hmm. who can stand up to the president, uh, right? So, because weak members make for a weak Parliament, uh, uh, which strengthens the executive by definition. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm with you. So what we're saying is, and I'm going to crudely summarize this and totally butcher your book, right? So. The historical process can shape the legislative means independence uh, of, the, of the means independence of the legislature. And so even if they can't necessarily control the final outcome all the time, they're wheeling and dealing, they develop strength and that happens over decades. That's a long term conflictual process. And then boom, multi-partyism happens and they're really able to get things going um, and then they really blossom and then they have ends independence, then they're able to control the process much more. So that's the historical process. Now how can we get there, the sort of the forward-looking idea, is that if MPs stayed in power longer, then they would have a stronger opportunity and incentive to strengthen that organisational process that means independence and ends independence. Uh, and to do that, we need to improve government performance and to enable MPs to claim credit for these small wins. Uh, yes. So, you know, ultimately you want MPs who are, who are part of an institution and not, yeah. you know, MPs who act like amateur yeah, legislators, yeah, yeah. All right? And, you know, it, in an ideal world, you have MPs being re-elected at reasonably high rates, uh, which, of course, will attract civil society to try and balance them, right? Mm -hmm. Because right now, if you're a member of the civil society and you're trying to invest your time and effort right. in, in checking a member, mm -hmm. right? 
it's your effort will be wasted because mm, you I only see. have five years yeah, and they're gone, right? Okay. So even uh, the civil society is not invested in checking the members. You know, it's kind of rare for people. You know, often when we. <laughs> When I think about the African politics literature, it's all about term limits and restricting how long people yeah. are in power. But you're saying, no, 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 keep them yeah. in just a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah, definitely, you know, definitely limit the presidents. Yeah, yeah, no, but no, sure, sure. for the sure. MPs, yeah, they yeah. should be, you know, they should okay. be allowed to stay longer in power. Okay, I'm with you, Ken. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining. This has been a treat. Yeah, this, is, this has been awesome. Uh, looking forward to next time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>